Welcome to Biomechanics on Our Minds. My name is Melissa Boswell. And I'm Hannah O'Day, and we're PhD students at Stanford University. This podcast is brought to you by the International Society of Biomechanics. It's, it's time, time for Boom. Welcome to Boom. Where we have Biomechanics on Our Minds. Welcome to episode 19 of Biomechanics on Our Minds. Today, we're talking with Professor Julie Steele from the University of Wollongong, and she has some really interesting things to talk about, everything from biomechanics of surfing to uh, some biases she's experienced to how she's able to give back to the community with her experience in, in research and her research projects. Yeah, we got to meet her at ISB. Uh, we just returned from Calgary and had a really fun time both promoting Boom and also talking with other students about their feedback on the podcast as well as presenting our own work. So it was really yeah. fun. Yeah, so it was the International Society of Biomechanics and American Society of Biomechanics conference in Calgary. And it, yeah, it was a blast. And I'm so sad we have to wait another two years for ISB again. I know, it really but, was like a big family reunion. Yeah, so, so it nice. was really, really fun. In our last episode, we talked about conferences and some tips for conferences and then we did that with francesco who has a podcast called dr you and francesco is a phd student at eth zurich and so his podcast on dr you or dr you is is about phd life and so we kind of follow up on our conference tips and what we tried and what worked and what didn't work on that podcast episode which i is already out so if you want to hear that, head on over to Dr. Yu. Uh, yeah, we chat, we chat with Francesco there. Yeah. So we will circle back to ISB and some things that we learned from all of you guys um, while we were there at the end of the episode. Yeah. But first, a bit of boom. 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 Uh, our bit of boom today is from a research group out of the Auburn University School of Kinesiology in Auburn, Alabama, and it was led by Sarah Brinkerhoff and her team, and it concerns, the research article is titled, Words Matter, Instructions Dictate Self-Selected Walking Speed in Young Adults. And what these researchers found was that walking prompts provided to young adults actually were able to explain 61% of the variability in gait speed. So how you instruct someone to walk, ranging from telling people to walk across the walkway at a slow speed, something very um, literal that they could translate to their walking, to walk as if you are walking from the bedroom to the kitchen, which is a little bit more free-flowing and interpretive. All of these different instructions affected actually how people walked. So it was amazing just to show how important it is to have really standardized instructions that you give to subjects when they're participating in research studies and yeah it was just yeah. it was cool because a lot of them targeted like different aspects like whether they want you to run fast or whether they want you to run like you're going to miss the bus and whether you're just walking they said just walk across the, wa the walkway so maybe in different cases we're optimizing for different things and then I think also the cool thing about this is that it really can be applied to so many different research experience experiments not just mm -hmm. walking not just running either, but just thinking about, okay, when you're giving someone instructions to move, 
how are you telling them to move? May you be like swaying them one way to like optimize for something in particular. And so I think it's cool that they're thinking about this and asking that question. And I think it's something, a question that, um, or something that we should definitely consider when designing our experiments. Yeah, I, yeah, that was very well said. And I think another interesting finding they had was that the individual differences alone between people accounted for 14% of the variability in gait speed. So mm-hmm. really, yeah, keeping in mind these different things when you're designing your experiment and conducting it in order to have the set yourself up to have the best like st- statistical power for when you're actually running your analyses. I think, yeah, is yeah, really definitely. People are so different and people are weird and you really can't predict what they're going to design. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's that's really cool. I, I really like this article and it's in the Gate and Posture, posture uh, Journal. Published, yeah, published July in 2019. And, yeah, actually, this reminds me of we had a subject in one of our experiments and we gave them the same instructions. We have it printed out on a piece of paper and we read it to every subject. And this, for the first time, this subject managed to get around our instructions and find a loophole <laughs> and walk a different way than everyone else had walked. And that was still like, didn't, that wasn't exactly following the instructions, but wasn't exactly following them either so like it was like this weird gray area and we had to say actually could you do it this way yeah didn't think we had to specifically tell him not to walk a certain way but But sometimes you really have to lay it out there (laughs) yeah it reminds me too when we have people walking and so we have a more of an older population and we're like okay just you know normal walking they're like speed walking and like sweating (laughs) and you're like is this too fast and they're like no this is how i normally walk and you're just like is it though (laughs) You know, let's just yeah, yeah. But you have to do okay. That's your preferred speed. Like I can't be like no, sorry, it's not (laughs) exactly. Yeah, normal. You can't. We've stopped using the word normal because it's like we have some pathological populations as well, and like they try to. They think normal is not what their normal is. They think normal is yes. They try to be normal. They try to be normal. I try to. It's hard. It's really hard. And and differences between between treadmill and on the ground ground, is so crazy too. Yeah. Because you can be walking at one speed overground and then you start walking on the treadmill and you're like, oh, this is this is really fast. Like, I don't think this is how it's walking. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I've done so many studies like that. And you're like, oh, my gosh, I thought I was a fast walker. Yeah. <laughs> but. Oh, well, now we'll jump into our interview with Julie Steele. We are excited to have Julie Steele on Boom today. She is the Senior Professor and Director of the Biomechanic Research Laboratory at the University of Wollongong in Australia. And Melissa and I had the pleasure of seeing Julie speak at the recent International Society of Biomechanics slash American Society of Biomechanics conference in Calgary. And we just immediately fell in love with Julie and all of her entire aura and the research she's doing and just um, everything about her. So we're really excited to have you, Julie, (laughs) on the show today. Lovely to spend time with you guys. Great. Uh, so actually, so the first question we like to start off with is, when did you first know that you wanted to be a biomechanist? Look, that's a really interesting question because, again, I've been involved in biomechanics, do I dare say, for 40 years. And at that stage, I hadn't even heard of it. It didn't exist. Um, so I, in the tradition of my era, I was a student who didn't really know what I wanted to do, but women went to two professions. You tended to go to teaching or nursing because that's all women did, um, which is a bit sad. But 
So I chuffed off to what we call Teachers College here. It doesn't actually exist in Australia anymore, but it was not a university. It was an advanced college of education to do PE teaching because I had a passion of sport. And it was while I was there that I was introduced initially to that there was actually a science underpinning this thing called sport. So I finished my diploma of teaching um, which in three years, but at that stage, because so many people were encouraged to go to Teachers College, there were actually no jobs. And it was at that phase that I again was introduced to biomechanics. The first time I hated it, the first time it was like this, this grumpy old standing there spitting out equations at me and I just couldn't understand why on earth you'd want to do it. It's, it's like it's a typical old example of what biomechanics was like. And so when I went to Western Australia, though, I had a passion as, a again, Australian female of this strange port that you guys don't really know called netball. In, in Australia, netball is the game that or, you know, most people used to play, or most females. It was very much a, it was a ladies' basketball where you play on a court like a basketball court but you don't have a backboard. And it's very positional. It, it's a you can look it up online. It's in Australia, in the Commonwealth Games countries, it's huge. So my passion for netball led me to ask if I could do a research project on netball. And I looked around and I saw that the physiologist had about 10 students and the motor control person had a whole lot of students and the biomechanist really had no one. And I thought, oh, okay. So I went and chatted to the guy who was actually um, Professor Bruce Elliott. And he was absolutely very down to earth, very practical and willing to take on this this girl who just simply wanted to do netball. And I started to do my honours degree in a year research project on the biomechanics of netball goal shooting, which I laugh. I became the instant kind of international expert because no one else in the world had even heard of netball, let alone done biomechanics. That was my passion. That's how I, I call myself the accidental biomechanist because I had no desire. I had, didn't understand what it was. It was just because Bruce Elliott was willing to take a risk on me and I was allowed to pursue this passion in biomechanics of netball. That's That's what started it. Wow. What a fun story. And it's very cool to really like follow your passion and then be able to make a project out of that, I feel like is rare and really exciting. Yeah. And very applications-based right from the (laughs) get-go. Very applications-based. I mean, I am an extremely applied biomechanist. I mean, as you know, biomechanics spans such a spectrum to you know, very hardcore mathematical engineering based. I come from a very practical physical education, anatomical base. So that's guided my research over the years, starting with this thing on the biomechanics of goal shooting and netball. And how could I try to assist these girls to be much more accurate in, in their shooting technique? Yeah. And so what type of research are you working on now? And are is it still like similarly in kind of the sport area and, and application it's really developed over the years. Um, I have enough. It, it, when people look at my research portfolio now, they go, "My goodness, what is this person thinking? She seems to be scattered everywhere." But there is a passion that we've always had in relation to using applied biomechanics in a very rigorous way to understand um, developing innovative strategies to prevent injuries and improve quality of life. So it started off with this idea, once I left the University of Western Australia, I pursued at Wollongong my my love of netball, but it became down to looking at lower limb injuries, particularly anterior cruciate ligament ruptures. And since then, we've extended that whole program to look at loading of the lower limb and how we can modify either technique or equipment to make uh, the loads less injurious or, or more comfortable. So that's expanded everything from sport to parachute jumping to elderly and trips and slips and falls 
to the effects of obesity and loading and looking at modifying footwear. At the moment, um, I'm actually combining um, looking at surfing. So it's not my passion of surfing. I have a couple of uh, outstanding surfing students, but they're passionate about surfing. I'm passionate about doing these aerials and, and more importantly, the landing. So what's the effect of changing technique on the loading that these um, surfers experience when they land these skills. It's like windsurfing? No, 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 surfing in the ocean. So this is board riding. Again, it's very much developing the passion locally in Wollongong. We have a very strong surf culture. Uh, I've got access. So, I, so I, I wait till I get students who have a real passion and we try to then combine their passion with my interests. And well, I think students, if you're going to get the most stimulating experience as a student and as a staff member who's supervising these students, the students need to own the project. They need to drive it. They need to own it. But if it's going to develop something special, it also needs to be part of your expertise and your your kind of direction as a research team. So this is where the idea at the moment, I've got two, you know, that, that project going with landing mechanics. I have another uh, PhD student who's just started looking at footwear development in, in netball, which kind of goes full circle. And as well as someone looking at long distance running and injuries and, and lower limb injuries in, in that particular kind of domain of, of, of research. Love to talk about that a little bit more too. But when you have such a widespread of topics that students are kind of able to choose on their own, do they have to then find funding that relate to that? Or do you somehow like find a way to mesh those together with funding that you already have? Look, interesting. Um, it depends. So sometimes I've got massive grants that will come in. And for example, I've just finished the, the big study, which we presented at the footwear conference on the development of coal um footwear for underground coal miners and that was funded by a coal services health trust and so we like sought a student who was keen to work in that area um other times if you think about it these days in the old days um 40 years ago when we used to do biomechanics research it was very expensive because we had to pay for consumables like high-speed film that was you know cost ten thousand dollars per project just for film these days to me the biggest cost is personnel and so if I can attract really high-flying students and assist them to get on scholarships, a lot of the funding can be quite minimal. And it's, again, not that they don't come to me with a project. They, I tend to seek students out and go, oh, you're interested in, in surfing. Oh, let's have a chat about it. And we then will kind of meld their passion. So we, we come to a project together, but it has to be – so I sit there, I suppose, again, it's because I've been in the game for so long – I have all these projects in my head and these areas and I wait for the right student to come along. So some of that has funding, some of that doesn't have funding and we seek. I always say, you know, I, 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 very much an Australian saying, oh yeah, I'll beg, borrow, steal. And I do mean that in a colloquial way. We need to do that project. So let's brainstorm the project first. Let's come up with the idea and the passion and then let's worry about the resources. That's really magical, I think, and so important to do because I think you talk about this bringing your passion to the science and the importance of being interested and being driven and being the owner of your project. But to have a mentor like you that's able to guide and help and, you know, craft alongside, I think is huge. You know, you really need both of those pieces. So great to hear and hear your enthusiasm about that process as well. Comes from also, I says that I'm lucky for have been around for so long. So when I first started, I was obviously much more focused and, and much more driven that I had to do these certain things. But as time builds, you realise that the best research you're ever going to do is going to be as a team. And you need all of those team members to really have that vision and passion and energy. And, and if they're doing something that they don't want to do, I, I, say, I often talk about the idea that if a student just comes in and gets given a project and gets told this is how they're done and they don't own it, 
they're more like just a consultant. They're not a researcher. They're doing a consultancy, not a researcher. They're not questioning. They're not developing that questioning ability, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, how do you think that plays out when, like, one of your our favorite things about your talk, you know we love talking about failure on Boom. Your talk title, actually, was talking about fabulous failures. And so we were wondering, like, how you're training your mentees and your students and, and also in your own career, how you sort of address these fabulous failures and, and helped others to surmount them. Oh, look, as, as I said in my talk, um, academia itself, if you go into academia research, it's, it's a field of rejection. If you think about it, you apply for grants and there's, I know in Australia now, there's something like a 10% um, acceptance rate for the, the higher schemes. You put in publications and your peers critique them and there's often a high rejection rate, especially if you're going for the highest quality journals. You apply for jobs and it's so competitive that they, you know, you've got to be robust. And I suppose that for me, that robustness, that resilience of being able to bounce back up again has, has happened over time. Because when I started... I remember for my little one-year honours project, I think I submitted five publications and all got accepted pretty quickly because it wasn't, this is 40 years ago, it was not nearly as competitive. Um, and I think over time, as the discipline and, and science has changed, that's allowed me, luckily, to develop that resistance uh, over resilience. And I suppose it's through that experience I now warn my students. And I, when I take a PhD student on, I say, look, this is going to be a roller coaster. You're going to love it at times. You're going to hate it at times. We're going to go up. We're going to go down. Be prepared. And it's. I think if people go in with their eyes open, it doesn't always work still. And, and this is where you do have to sort out who is appropriate for this type of career because it can be soul-destroying. But if you know that, as I think, again, I mentioned in my talk, my goodness, actually having those successes, you need to celebrate them and realise that, that that little 5% chance that you can find makes all that fight worth it. Yeah. Yeah, that's so true. And you actually at one point said to just kind of like embrace the failure as a mentor and kind of like help it guide you. And I was wondering, like, do you have any particular failures that were like especially hard for you to overcome throughout your career? Oh, gosh, where do you start? <laughs> you know? Um, there's so many times. I mean, I, I go back to a grant that I put in. It's called a, it was called a LEAF grant, which is a major infrastructure grant. And I was applying desperately trying to get some equipment because um, my lab had virtually nothing. I had a force platform and the old high-speed cameras and I was trying to come up with a motion capture system. This is way back in the 90s. I can remember the first time I got that grant rejected. I was just, I, I beg your pardon, you're, you're rejecting me, but this, this application is fantastic. I actually put that grant in, I think it was five times. And I remember my research office here going, why on earth are you bashing your head against that brick wall? You know, why are you doing this to yourself? Because every time you got these kind of really critical comments and and because, again, these granting agencies are looking for reasons to not support them because it's it's so competitive. It's not their fault. They, they've only got a certain finite amount of money. I got that on the fifth time. And I remember my Deputy Vice Chancellor Research at the time saying, oh, my God, you are stubborn, aren't you, and good on you. And it's that idea of just getting it. I mean, doesn't mean I, I keep smiling all the time. Goodness, when you get these rejections, I, I just feel equally anguished and often you know feel like I'm going home and kick the cabinet or something next strategy and even when my students when we are planning what they're going to publish out of their thesis 
um, we actually do a list and often we'll say, right, this is the first journal we will apply for. What's your second and third? So we come up with a, a grid of which papers they're going to publish and which up to four or five journals we will approach. Expect the first one to be rejected. You hope it doesn't. But I've we've had one paper, and I probably shouldn't say this, that was rejected fifteen times before it was accepted. Now that in the end, when we sat back, I actually wrote to an editor, and I rarely do this, but I wrote to an editor and I said, "Look, I'm not complaining. I'm not whinging. Could you explain to me because we couldn't get it past the editor and of these journals? And I kept thinking, what is wrong? They said the science was good." And this particular editor was fantastic and said, look, Julie, it's not the quality. It's just that if you're going to a rehabilitation journal, these are the scope of things you need to do. It's just not what we're looking for. And it was his words of wisdom when he went through the, you know, the lengthy explanation that I went, oh, what I thought was important for rehab specialists was actually not important. It ended up being published in, in clinical biomechanics in a good journal. We were just going the wrong way. So, again, I think I used the words of Thomas Edison. where we, I think he said, you know, I have not failed. I've just found 10,000 ways that won't work. But it's looking at that and tr seriously trying to learn from those failures and not complaining, not whinging to, but can you learn from, because the editors of many of these journals are fantastic people. I mean, I don't, I don't suggest that you bombard every editor every time you have a failure, but sometimes it's really worth to sit back and go, well, could you just tell me, please, in, in positive terms, what have I done wrong? And even though, as I said, I've been around for 40 years, it's just sometimes, oh my gosh, Julie, open your eyes. It was a silly thing to do. You should be going a different direction. Yeah. Yeah. I like that you included too, like, can you tell me in a positive way? way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, and that's really important because, I mean, all of us think our work is brilliant. All of us think our work is, you know, why would no one understand how you know, great it is? Ha -ha. But, you know, sometimes you do need, you, you can't, you, you become so passionate about your own work. You, I mean, you're not going to be doing it unless you think it's really, really high quality and really good work. How could someone reject it? So sometimes you do need to step back and have some fresh eyes, look at it and go, actually, this is what you need to think about. Yeah, I think that's a really good point to be open to other perspectives. And I think sometimes, you know, you put so much work into it and you're so passionate about it that it's like easy to become defensive and be like, but this is really good. And and so I think your point of like taking it in stride and being like, okay, well, let's hear about how we can make this work. I think that's that's really great. Yeah. Let's try and use different, you know, not so much the rose color glasses. Let's look back and be a little bit critical. And as I said, this is this happened recently, about two years ago, and, and that's after, you know, 30 something years of, of, of working in that field. So it, you never, you've never been around too long to keep learning. That was something I was trying to come up with in that particular thing. I've had massive failures of doing, targeting the wrong grants or doing publications that were just not probably what we needed or start I've had students that have done brilliantly but I've had a couple of students who have crashed and burnt you know things are going not not everything is always rosy and I just think it's to sit back and and go right what what happened there what can I learn and and often you do need to bring someone else in who's got clearer vision who's not so passionate about to say no 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 this is what you need to think about yeah I think also like you're addressing like being able to sort of expect this and not expecting that everything's going to go perfectly all the time really shifts that um, shifts how you can feel when things don't go right, right? If you're like always expecting everything to be perfect. And a lot of the times I think it's easy to look at other people and feel like maybe they're being perfect or their, their things are all getting accepted and things like that. But like, but being 
yeah, but kind of being real about it, taking it maybe not pers- like not so personally. It's hard not to take it personally sometimes, but that's so important that this is research. This is not who you are. This is the work you are doing and are passionate about and you do need to step back. And I think you made a huge, a very important point. It's a little bit like the, what they're saying with social media these days, that Instagram, you know, people's lives look perfect. It can be the same with academia where you see these people tweeting all these positive things and all their life is perfect. But I'm sure if you scratch the surface, most of them are going through the same rejections and the same struggles. It's part of academia. Um, you cannot, you, you, you might start off your career absolutely blossoming, but there's always going to be ups and downs. Expect it, learn from it, deal with it, move on, be passionate. Wow. Very well put. Thank you. <laughs> Um, another thing we talked about at the conference that I just wanted to mention, we had a dinner on gender bias and you and Chris Haas hosted it and it was just really, really well done. Um, but in the presentation, you talked about the different types of biases and one of them was maternal bias and you gave an example from your experience and I was wondering if you would be willing to share that again. Obviously, I'm not going to mention names, but um, I'm I have two children, they're adult children. One is 29 nearly and the other one is 24. So we're going back quite a few years ago. When I actually became pregnant with my first child, so we're talking about 29 years ago, I went to my then boss and I explained to him that I was pregnant and I was going to take maternity leave. And I was surprised actually because a few people in America said, oh, you had that amount of maternity leave way back then. I said, yeah, we did. So we were entitled to six months on full pay or we could take also six months off on, on no pay. So I actually decided that I wanted to take 12 months off. Now, I had been working, that was in, oh gosh, I'm trying to think when that was, way back in 1990. Um, and I had already been working at the university since 1983. So I had been here for a fair time. I hadn't taken any leave. Um, and I remember my boss at the time saying, Julie, is that, an, is that a good idea? You, you've actually let yourself down because it's going to ruin your career. Having such a break, you've let the department down. Um, I can't remember the exact words, but it was along those lines. I was, I was made to feel that this was totally inappropriate and how dare I as a academic um, want to take this leave and, and I was this was basically the end of my career. Now, at the time I was kind of expecting this, just knowing who the individual was and just knowing the nature of the person. I had gone to human resources and found out exactly what my rights were and I had also found out what the department received in my absence. So, for example, saying that the department, I'd let the department down because I was leaving them short of a position, I knew that was actually completely not true. Um, I knew that they received funding for my position, so that was a matter of just bringing someone in. So um, I just took a deep breath. I thought there was no point yelling or doing anything and, and took my leave, knowing also that this type of person doesn't stay in a, in a role for long. And, in fact, one of the reasons I had decided to take the 12 months is that I, I wasn't happy under this person's rulership, so to speak, and it really was a rulership, um, and that by the time I came back, this person, it was six months, they'd moved on. So, um, again, it's, it's having faith in your own ability that did this destroy my career? I don't think so. Um, <laughs> I'm pretty sure it didn't. In fact, having the two children um, opened up opportunities that I would never, ever have thought of. So I did end up doing work on the effects of obesity on children's feet and we worked with the company ASICS on developing footwear for children who had obesity to help them be more comfortable 
And that all came because I was sitting there watching my child at a swimming lesson and looking at all these children around going, my gosh, you know, the, the, the high level of obesity. And if it wasn't for my kids, I wouldn't have been in that situation. I wouldn't have thought about that whole concept that opened a whole area of research that we did for about 10 years on obesity and children and foot structure. Wow, that's amazing. I've heard that actually before from other professors kind of getting some inspiration mm-hmm. from their children for research projects, which I think is really amazing. Also, I smile. The other benefit, my daughter at the time, um, when I was actually, I think, 11 weeks pregnant with her, I hadn't told anyone at that stage because normally you don't make it public till you know, about the, the, you got through that first trimester. I was in the corridor and I was speaking to a, a master's student and she said, oh, I'm looking for participants really tough. And I said, oh, who do you need? She goes, I'm looking for women who are in their first trimester of pregnancy the long story was she was looking for women that who could look at a longitudinal study of the effects of pregnancy on structure and function of the rectus abdominis and, and um, implications for exercises. And I looked at her and I smiled and I went, I think you found your first participant. I was able, as a biomechanist, I was able to help her better understand how she had to do this research, although she wasn't specifically my student. On the other hand, I could also tell her as a pregnant woman, no, you can't ask a woman to do this. You know, there were certain things that as a pregnant woman you couldn't lie for three hours without going to the bathroom. And I do laugh. I've still got the images. And so I was able to show my daughter that she was my model um, <laughs> conferences on childhood obesity. She would come in and, and be my foot model or be my leg model. And not that she was obese, but she was the standard, you know, the normal child. She was the international model for her mother um, as, a, as a kind of 10, 11-year-old. She thought that was fabulous. So you can involve your in a way they can help you and it opens up opportunities and you know did it destroy my career I would say it enhanced it and I, I do I have any regrets at all of having kids in academia absolutely not yeah that's yeah. really great to hear I hope that your daughter still has that on her CV oh, no, and I've got I've got a son here who's doing you know advanced medicinal chemistry he's also a surfer so suddenly he thinks his mother's doing something special because she's actually doing something that is relevant to him is he does he participate in your studies he actually does because he spent a um, a year in the world qualifying circuit, so he's a highly skilled surfer. Um, so, but the, it, my interest in the surfing research actually opened up at the same time. It wasn't because of him; um, it was actually because of my passion of landing mechanics, and they were trying to work out ways to reduce the injury happening in surfing in these aerials. But um, I went. I got to spend a week up at the high performance centre um, in New South Wales for Surfing Australia. And I could take him up with me. He was, a, oh, I don't know, he was about 15 at the time because they also ran camps for kids. So he suddenly thought that this was pretty impressive that here his mum was working with some of these elite Australian surfers um, that he could get to stand and watch in the background while he was also doing his own camp there. So, again, it's merging the passions as a mother um, with kids. And it's certainly, again, it, I, my understanding because he went right through the typical program here of you know young surfer and all through up to the qualifying circuit I got to understand surfing which really helped my understanding of the research that's very cool and to just kind of bring it back to the biomechanics um, I was wondering what injuries are really prevalent in surfers and kind of what technological approaches you're taking to understand the biomechanics during surfing since it's really like biomechanics in the wild even more challenging since it's in the water Oh, when you say in the wild, um, it's a little bit off topic, but we went and did a study in the Matawis, which is a small 
um, oh, the Macaronis is the resort, it's actually off the west coast of um, Sumatra. It took us 55 hours to get there when we did a study last year. And, that, and the reason why we went there is because um, at the time we couldn't get access to a wave pool and we needed a really, really consistent wave. And this particular resort has one of the most consistent natural waves in the world. And it was actually cheaper to get to the Mentawis than to try and hire out a wave pool, but that's another story. Um, so that was really what we ended up spending an hour on a longboat um, up up a, in the jungles of Sumatra to go and visit a, la, a little village because we try to combine our research with if we can help the local community. So we actually ended up visiting a little village and taking educational resources to this village where the kids, there was no electricity. It was all run off um, burning coconuts and the oils. It was the most humbling experience of my life. But going back to the other research we're doing, the, the work we're doing, the injuries are associated particularly with landing mechanics. So these are the lower limb injuries. It's when they land incorrectly. So often to do with ankles, knees. Um, if anyone is aware of the surfing, Mick Fanning, who's a very famous um, world champion Australian, just did his ACL. It was in a turn, but they have a lot of these particular problems. If you look at surfing, they will often have a um, the back knee they have in this kind of knocked in knee position. So it places a lot of stress on the medial aspects of the knee. So we're quite passionate about how can we look at the way they land, their technique to come up with successfully. Many of these tasks are quite challenging. They they score the harder or the higher the degree of difficulty, the lower the success rate, the more they are likely to be scored higher. So they're taking these risks at the moment, these challenging risks. And we're trying to say, well, can we come up with a way to take the risk out of it, make it, well, not so much the risk out of it, but help them be more successful at their technique. That's that's really amazing. And um and a great example of biomechanics in the wild, which Melissa and I always get really excited about. And that kind of brings us to our answer to this question that we have for you, one of our favorite questions to ask people, which is what are you excited about for the future of biomechanics? At the moment, a lot of what we're doing has to be laboratory based. And you go, my goodness, how on earth can you do surfing and aerials? So we have a training drill that they use at the high performance center where the surfers take a what they call a soft top, we take the fins out, um, they run up, land on a mini tramp, launch themselves into the air, and they land on a crash mat to be able to do this because it's not obviously in the water. We are desperately trying at the moment to get this into the water. So we're trying to make sure that, okay, we can't have a motion capture system there, So, but we've got the IMUs. Can we waterproof these? Um, which is possible. So we're now looking at the next step is what we've learned in the lab we're trying to take into the water. So we're the concept that the sensors that are coming up can be tiny, so they're not impeding movement. They can be waterproof. Hopefully they can be saltproof and, and all those type of things. I mean, when I first started doing my biomechanics, and I think I showed a couple of these black and white photos of um, myself way back in the early 80s, we had, you know, big, bulky, high-speed cameras. The, the first Bolex I used was didn't even have power. You had to spring, you wound the spring up really tightly to try and generate the mechanical mechanisms to put the film through, and then you had to go and get that film processed. It was so tedious, so time-consuming, and all the sensors were that we used were so bulky and um, impeded movement. So the idea that we had these smaller sensors, these sensors that can be used out in the wild, I think just opens up so many opportunities to start answering real questions that are um, ecologically valid. 
I mean, one of my pet hates is that uh, I'm, a, I'm a passionate long distance runner. It's only relatively recent. I do trails and I sit there and I listen to a lot of the running talks and I think, but this is not applicable for those people who might do these 100 kilometer runs out in the wild. But now we have sensors, and I believe the big UTMB, the Ultra Trail Mont Blanc, is on this weekend. It's in um, Europe. I believe there's a couple of biomechanists, or at least one, who is going to be running the race covered in sensors. I'm not quite sure exactly what, but I'm dying to see what they come from that. So the idea that the future can take the questions that we've had to be restricted into the lab and take them out into the real world in a way that's not going to impede performance, that excites me incredibly. Yeah, that is really exciting. And your first ultra marathon is coming up, right? Uh, no, I've actually been doing ultra marathons for the last three years. My first 100K is coming up. Oh, that's so I great. I celebrate okay. my 60th birthday next year by running 100 kilometers through the of New Zealand. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Amazing. Are you going to censor yourself up? <laughs> uh, probably not at this stage. If someone wants to sponsor me to censor me up into UTMB, I'd happily do it. No, I joke. I, I haven't so far. I haven't. I have put some insoles in um, some of the load sole cells that Novell had. I, they gave me a pair, and I, I've had them on in a couple of little local training runs. Um, but I do worry about. Obviously, if you're starting to do 100k, I'm, I'm still not sure. I, I, the furthest I've run in a, a single go is is 67k. It's just whether the the additional weight, you've got to be really careful, um, all those things. But, again, the smaller the sensors get and the more robust they get, and if someone wants to collect the data from me, I'm happy to be involved. <laughs> and I could imagine that, like, if you have a sensor strapped on, like that strap might not be comfortable for 100K. Yeah. Well, that was one of the other talks I gave at um, ISB was the old of frictional injuries, and I, there was a whole on run like a, a woman and they were all talking about lower limb, lower limb, lower limb. And the first thing I said, well, actually, don't forget, we're talking about women. These women have breasts. And one of the biggest problems in a lot of these ultra marathons is trying to get clothing, particularly breast support, that doesn't chase. And when you are running, yeah, I think I quoted the idea of, of Deidre McGee's work where if you take a jogger, she's possibly having 10,000 breast bounce in a, an hour of slow running you think of that many times that you've got your breasts moving and chafing in, in this gear, you come up with horrendous chafing injuries. So the idea if you had to have sensors, there would have to be something that, again, is placed on the skin so there's no friction between the skin and the sensor. Yeah, wow. that's really interesting. Well, thank you, Julie. This has I been know. really fun. This has been so fun. If students want to follow you, would you mind – you're on Twitter, right? Would you mind sharing your Twitter handle? Uh, again, one of these people I go, oh, I'm madly trying to get onto my little handle now and have it. Yeah, it's Julie Steele, so capital J U L I E, Steele with a couple S T double E L E six. Um, I'm getting better at Twitter. I'm still a little bit slow at Twitter. <laughs> yeah. Okay, very well. Cool. That's yeah. Thank you so much for talking with us, and we've really enjoyed this. My absolute pleasure. And look, thank you because again, this is where we need people like yourself who are coming through as the next generation and you are so passionate and to, I loved your stand at ISB where you had the little sticky notes and the fabulous failures or things that are for science. So congratulations and thank you for, you know, really doing this for Biomechanics. Well, we hope you enjoyed that interview as much as we did. We um, had a great we were time. pretty much smiling the whole time. <laughs> Quick announcement before our uh, failures. We're excited to announce a new series on the podcast that is sponsored by Sanford Health. And so this is going to be a new, a, an extra episode every month 
that's called um, Student Voices, where basically we're encouraging other students to get involved in the podcast. And so um, other students are going to come on and interview people that they want to interview or talk to other students and basically just open up the conversation on topics that they want to talk about. And so we're really excited to hear what what topics you think are really interesting, but then also hear you talk about them with people that, that you want to hear their opinion on. So we have a, our first couple lined up, but if you want to come on the podcast um, or if you want to interview someone and have it featured on the podcast, just uh, let us know because we are looking for students who want to get involved. So we're really excited for our first one to come out next month. And so you'll hear more about that when the episode comes out. Um, so again, thank you to Stanford Health for sponsoring this series. Um, they have also have some really awesome programs set up for students where they can um, gain some hands-on experience in the clinic, right, in like mm-hmm. hospitals. Um, so we'll learn more about that from Lisa McFadden, who works at Stanford Health and worked with us to come up with this idea and this new series. Yeah, Lisa's really awesome, so we're excited to have her on board and be part of this, as well as hear about a lot of different student experiences. So we're excited to hear from you. Yep, yep. so you can email us at biomechanicsonourminds at gmail.com or reach out to us on Twitter at biomechanicsoom and let us know that you want to chat on the podcast. Yeah, we've already had a couple people reach out, so don't hesitate to ask. Yep. Cool. Well, so we're going to circle back to the to ISB, ASB this year and leads us into our research fails because we set up a table at ISB, ASB, and we had the question up. Well, we had two questions. The first question that we put up was, um, what was one thing you could change, you would wish you could change in science and research? And then about halfway through the conference, we added you know, failing is fun, let us know a research fail. And so we had all these post-it notes and it was really awesome to see people engaged and having a fun time thinking about times they failed or things they wish they changed. So we're going to read some of the failures that people listed. Yeah, thank you guys for everyone who participated. It was fun to come back periodically throughout the conference and almost at concert throughout the conference <laughs> and see what people had added. Yeah, and there are things that we I think we can all relate to, which is why I think it's so fun because you read some and you're like, oh, yeah, I've totally done that before. Or like, oh, yeah, that's a good thing to look out for when I'm going to do that. So some funny research fails that you guys shared with us. Maybe... <laughs> Maybe not off. Maybe looking back on it, it's funny. I Sorry, feel like. not funny. Sorry, <laughs> you're right. That was not sensitive of me. Like, for example, someone wrote research equals failure, which I think is can be taken a lot of different ways, but I think is actually really true. I mean, that's what we try to celebrate here is that research really is all about failure and figuring out how to learn from it. Yeah, yeah. And like being able to like prove previous research that you thought was right, wrong, because you're able to like advance and... Yeah. So some other ones, not reading enough literature before starting. Yeah. That's always a challenge when you like think that you're somewhere and you have this new question and then all of a sudden you come across a paper and you're like, oh no. (laughs) (laughs) Finding a typo in our publication too late and then somebody dittoed that one. 
Oh, someone forgot to do or or didn't do pilot testing. That can be huge. And just trying to, I think that kind of comes on the theme of like failing fast and early. You actually really want to try to set yourself up to come and encounter those failures early in your studies rather than later. Yeah. Uh, borrowed a, la- a microscope from the lab next door, which was a huge hassle. Turns out we had the same microscope in the junk corner we just never <laughs> organized. <laughs> Check out that junk corner every so often. <laughs> You'll never know what you might find over there. Yeah. We're making an FEA model on the computer that turned off after 15 minutes of inactivity and low RAM crashed oh. after 14 hours. Sad day. Yeah, that'd be a rough, rough day. You got some poor signal between instruments. It's hard. There's a great book called Signal to Noise. Everyone should read. Everyone should read, yes. Speaking of signals, there's a, another fail. PhD pilot data set collected without analog signals. Oh, no. Exclamation point. Oh, someone else flooded oh, their lab. Someone flooded the lab. Oh, boy. That is a lot. Oh, boy. That's, uh, yep. We have someone in charge of our building who who would be really angry about that. <laughs> we currently can't use our third floor sink because of some issues with people. So Yeah, so we can't we can't flood our lab because we're we can't. we can't even use the sink. Yeah. We actually are very <laughs> thankful that she is adamant and, you know, protects our building from all harm. Sketchy homemade sensors from masters. Huge fail. Huge, Huge fail. fail. <laughs> Ooh, turn on your instrument before you create a shock. <laughs> Yikes. Forgot my poster at home. Oh, sad. Oh, sad, sad, sad. Oh, no. My friend did this one, too. <laughs> Sneezing while feeding the stem cells and contaminating them. Oh, sad face. <laughs> oh, yeah, I had a friend who did that, and oh. it really made me laugh, even though it's not funny, but it's like, okay. It's it would like, be like you can't help it. Yeah. Um, the last one tried to collect EMG data on NASA's KC-135 microgravity aircraft. Electrodes had to be placed while on the runway in Houston in July of temperatures that were above a hundred degrees Fahrenheit, and sweat made this impossible. Oh, sweaty. Yeah. Yeah, that would make it hard to put some sensors on. Yeah. Well, anyways, those were some really fun fails. If you have more fails, just whenever you have a fail, just like shout it out to us on Twitter, and Please do. we'll just feel free to shout it out. Support in your lab. you, just support, yeah. Shout <laughs> we'll it out in the it. lab. Just shout it from the rooftops, and and we got your back. Really, it, it's true. Mm-hmm. So we'll read the answers from the. Other poster that we had on what would you change in science and research on the next episode. Sounds great. Yay. And so, yeah, be on the lookout for Student Voices episode coming up. You want to announce who we'll be interviewing on the next episode? Sure. On our next Boom episode, we're going to be talking with Dr. Tim Hewitt, who is a biomechanics research consultant, and Dr. Kate Webster, who's a professor at La Trobe University in Melbourne. Australia. So we'll be talking with them next episode. And thanks everyone for supporting us at ISB. And it was great to meet everyone. And please keep the feedback coming because we really appreciate it and are happy to make boom whatever you guys want it to be.
Thanks for listening to Biomechanics on Our Minds. My name is Melissa. And I'm Hannah. And you can follow Biomechanics on Our Minds on Twitter at BiomechanicsOOM. Or you can email us if you have any research fails or just anything you'd like to share or hear on Boom at BiomechanicsOnOurMinds at gmail.com. Thank you to Peter Washington for making the music to our podcast. We love all the tracks. And a big thank you to the International Society of Biomechanics for sponsoring us and spreading the Boom love. Mm-hmm. Biomechanics off our minds. Bit of boom. Bit of boom. Bit of boom. Bit of boom. Bit of boom.